0: Romans 15, Romans 15, verses 7 through 22, quite a bit tonight, Uh, but we'll ask that the Lord would bless our time together. Please have your Bibles open and follow along and hear the Word of God, Romans 15, starting in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. Then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum—sorry, it's a tough one—I fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. All right, Like I said, a lot there. I know um, we'll fly high in some places and we'll really camp out uh, in others. So allow me to pray for us um, as we uh, approach God's word. Lord God. We do ask that you would be with us in this time. Give us understanding of your word. May Christ be exalted. Lord, I pray that the sweetness of your gospel would either be made new or would be afresh on us tonight. And Lord, that your gospel would cause us to worship. That your gospel would cause us to love. Would cause us to live for you. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time clearest of distractions, pray your Holy Spirit will work mightily for your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, maybe you uh, could sense it a little bit, uh, maybe not, if not you will in the coming weeks, but we are now approaching the end of this letter of Romans. And I hear some odds out there, that's good. <laughs> For some of you, maybe uh, you're excited that it's ending. Maybe you're... Ex- start- yeah, there you go, Ferris, thanks for your honesty. Uh, maybe you're tired of the book and you want to study something else, huh, Ferris? Yeah, okay. Uh, for others, maybe if you're, if you're like me, you're, you're a little sad to see it nearing its end. I don't know, maybe it's a mixed crowd here. Uh, to me, it's kind of like the end of, of a long book series. Uh, actually, I've never read a book series, so I've never it's, it, it's more like uh, uh, the end of a long TV show, and you're like, "Oh man, I won't be able to see these characters anymore; they're all gone." Or, or the end of a long vacation, right? You're like, "Ah, oh, it's the last day." Or, or for me, it's like the end of the sushi platter, and I take the last piece, and I'm like, "No oh, more sushi." Right? So you're sad. You're happy of the journey you went through, but you're sad that it's coming to an end. Um, well, here it's it's sad. To see that we're going to be closing out, I think, just such a beautiful letter uh, that Paul wrote. Uh, But indeed, we are nearing the end. And tonight, as we study this passage, uh, this large passage, we're actually going to be closing out one section uh, and starting a new section, which which is Paul's, I think, his last section here in this letter. Uh, The first section, verses 7 through 13. Paul uh, concludes this long section that he started in chapter 14, verse 1. You might remember very large section in which his main thrust and focus has been that all Christians ought to be united together. The weak and the strong Christian united. Despite differences and disagreements, we are to love each other and be united together. Right, That's been the theme for several weeks now. And as he closes out that section, as we'll see tonight, he ends it by charging us to accept others in the way Christ Has accepted us. And he reminds both the Jew and the Gentile that there ought not be division between the two because all are partakers in uh, the grace and the hope of Jesus Christ. Then, starting in verse 14, which will be our second section tonight, Paul begins the closeout of his letter. It's kind of a hinge point here. He begins. His wrap-up. He talks about his ministry to them. His, his present ministry and his hopeful future future ministry to them, which we'll look a little bit at next week. And as he does so, his focus and his drive is not on himself, uh, even though he is talking about himself. But rather, his focus is on Christ and the work that he does and that he has done. So tonight we're going to look at these two main sections. Uh, the, the close-out of one and, and the beginning of a new one, which is his final section. But overall, through, through both of these two sections, we are going to see how it is vital for Christ to be at the center of the Christian life. And first, we're going to see how Christ, being at the center of the Christian life, affects the way that we accept others. And then second, we'll see how Christ, being at the center of the Christian life, affects the way in which we proclaim him. So in short, I would say Christ is the center of Of who we accept and what we proclaim. Hence the title that's cut off because the screen is oddly uh, placed there. All right. So, our first section the acceptance of Christ, verses 7 through 13. The acceptance of Christ, verse 7 through 13. And we're going to spend most of our time here in this section, and really a lot of it in verse seven. In fact, last week uh, Ethan tempted me just to do one sermon on verse seven, and I almost (laughs) did. But Ethan, I did not fall to your temptation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but I might be regretting that now. All the content we have tonight. Do it now. All right. First, we see Christ's acceptance of the Christian. Christ's acceptance of the Christian. Verse 7 starts with a therefore. It says, therefore, welcome one another. And so we look back to see what this verse is refer- referring to. And it's therefore. And it really is therefore summarizes everything from 14.1 up to this point. And I would say especially the last two verses we looked at last week that commend us to live in harmony with one another and with one voice glorifying God together. Then he says, therefore, therefore, in light of living in harmony with one another, glorifying God together in one voice, he says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It says, welcome one another. That's what the ESV says, which, which is what I read. Welcome. The NASB and others use the word accept. Accept one another. The King James Version uses receives. Receive one another. It's the idea of accepting and receiving and welcoming them. That you are not rejecting them. You are not judging them. You are not at odds with them. But instead you accept and you receive and you welcome them. There is a lot to unpack in this small little verse, as Ethan had anticipated. So we will unpack quite a bit here in this section. So if you're taking notes, even though I'm not going to put more bullet points up, there's going to be a lot of subpoints in this one point, okay? But just be prepared for that. Take your notes as you wish. Right now I want us to focus on the statement in this verse, verse 7, that says, As Christ has welcomed you, or as Christ has accepted you. Let's spend some time understanding what that really means for Christ to have welcomed, for him to accept, for him to receive you. If you are indeed a Christian here tonight, what does that mean, that Christ has accepted you? Well, in order for us to do that, I want us to first look at, well, who were we when Christ accepted us? And secondly, in what ways does Christ accept us? What were we like? Who were we when Christ accepted us? And then what does Christ? What ways does Christ accept us? So who are we that Christ accept us? What ways? Well, first, we are sinners. Christ accepts us as sinners. We are sinners. And being a sinner is our nature. It's not first what we do, but it is first what we are. By nature, we are sinners. Every single person is born with a sin nature. Even Duncan in the back. Nolan, I'm sorry. He's a little sinner he says, yeah, see, he knows. All of us who are born under Adam are born with a sin nature. And you say, well, no, I was born in, in a Christian family. I've always been a Christian. I've always been in a Christian family. And if you were born in a Christian family, I say, thank God for that. Praise God for that. You are a sinner born in a Christian family. We are all sinners by nature. And in being sinners, we sin." That means that we have gone against what God has said. That we go against His will. That we go against His commands. That we sin against God Almighty Himself. That we are rebels against God. So not only that are we sinners, but second off, we are outcasts, the Bible says. We are outcasts. Outcasts from who? We are outcasts from God. God cannot be with sin. For God is perfect. God is holy. There is no sin in God. Sin, in fact, completely goes against the very nature of God himself. And so being sinners in our own nature, we cannot have communion with God. We cannot be with God. Instead, we are alienated. We are separated from God. Ephesians 2.14 says there is a wall of hostility. Hostility between us and God. That is that alienation. That is that separation. A wall of hostility. It's like this giant wall that is just reaches through the heavens, and there's us on one side and God on the other. It's this wall of hostility. We cannot uh, go through it. We cannot go around it. We cannot go above it. We cannot go under it. Isn't there like a children's book about that or something? It's like the squirrel went around it. The squirrel went above it. Okay. That's we cannot do that with this wall of hostility. It separates us. It alienates us from God. And this hostility that we have, this wall of hostility, shows there is no neutrality between us and God. You cannot be neutral with Him. You cannot be sitting on the wall and say, well, sometimes I'll lean towards God and sometimes I'll lean away from God, but I'm all right. Like, we're okay. We're chill. We're neutral. We're fine with each other. There is no neutrality. You are on one side of that wall or the other. There's a wall of hostility separating us, alienating us in our nature apart from him. And because of this hostility, by nature we are his enemy. We are at war with God. And maybe you think you're fine with God. I'm talking to the non-Christian. Maybe you think you're fine with God, but if you remain in your natural state, if you have not been born again, you are not fine with God. You are, the Bible says, an enemy of God. Even if You feel you are neutral, but you're not with him. You're not for him and you are against him. To make things even worse, thirdly, I would say, as we're describing ourselves, we are dead and hopeless. In fact, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us of our spiritual deadness apart from Christ. You guys know that? Josiah preached on that a little while ago. That there is no spiritual life in us. That we cannot respond to the things of God. That we cannot save ourselves. That we have no ability on our own to change our nature of sinner. On our own to end our hostility with God. And on our own to become spiritually alive. We cannot. But we are dead. We cannot spiritually respond. We cannot change who we are on our own strength. Or by our own doings. This is who we are in our natural state. Everything that I just said, that we are sinners, that we are outcasts, separated, alienated, enemies, that we are dead, that we are hopeless. This is who we are. And yet, Christ accepts us. And yet, Christ accepts us. And he accepts us in this state in which I described, that is the condition in which we are in, in which he accepts us. This is the plot twist. You see, he does not accept us once we get ourselves out of this state, once we are no longer sinners, once we are no longer outcasts, once we are no longer alienated or enemies or dead, then he accepts us. No, he doesn't wait until we've lived a good life. He doesn't wait until we've become interested in the things of God, or until we've put in enough time at church, or until we've learned enough things about God. Then he accepts us. No. He accepts us in this state. In the state in which I just described. Being a sinner, an outcast, an enemy, and dead, and hopeless. And it is in that state in which Christ accepts us. We do not clean ourselves up before we come to him, but we come as we are, broken and sinful and dead. But his acceptance of us changes all of that. His acceptance of us, if you are indeed born again, if you are indeed in Christ then you are now a new creation. You are no longer hostile with God. You are no longer his enemy, but instead you have been adopted into the family of God. You are no longer spiritually dead, but you are now alive in Christ. You are no longer hopeless, but now you have eternal hope that never perishes. You see, Christ's acceptance of us changes everything. Everything. But what does Christ's acceptance of his people actually look like? What does it look like for Christ to accept us? Here's more of your sub-bullet points. Many different ways. What, What does it look like? First, Christ accepts us joyfully. He accepts us joyfully. There are three parables that are back to back to back in the Gospel of Luke All of which point us to the fact that God rejoices in our salvation. In fact, he directs us to rejoice in other people's salvation as well. And they are the parables of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Some people call it the prodigal son. I think it's more in its context about the lost son. Let me read of what it says in each three of those parables in Luke 15. The first one, verses 5 and 6, talking about the lost sheep. And when he has found it... He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then he does the parable of lost coin, verses 9 and 10. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the parable of the lost son, verses 22 through 24. Sorry, wrong page. Verse 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, there is joy and there is celebration that Christ has in accepting us. Even the angels rejoice. Christ does not accept us begrudgingly, but he does so joyfully. Secondly, Christ accepts us in spite of our sin. He accepts us. In spite of our sin. And thank God for this. Because if Christ did not accept us in spite of our sin, then we would never be accepted. We would never be saved. For who can stand before God? You? I know I couldn't. But even in the midst of our sin, even while we were sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Christ loved us. And Christ accepted us. Just as we studied months ago in Romans chapter 5, you might recall. And as I said earlier, God does not wait for us to clean ourselves up before he accepts us. If he did, then no one would be accepted. But he accepts us in spite of our sin. Thirdly, Christ accepts us impartially. Impartially. What that means is God does not save just a specific type of person. He's not partial towards rich people only. Otherwise, Lord knows I wouldn't be saved. He is not partial towards Americans only. Definitely not. He's not partial towards just churchgoers only. Those who, who always go to church. He He's not partial just towards good people only. Just the good people. Then I'll save them. No, he is impartial you can be black or white or blue or green. It doesn't matter. You can be rich. You can be poor. You can be a, a, a perfect church attender. Or you could have never set foot in a church ever. God's salvation is available to you. He is not partial. He does not say, oh, you're that skin color? No, never mind. You're not welcome. Oh, you haven't gone to church very much? You kind of skip out? Yeah, no. No, you're not welcome. Oh, you did that sin? I mean, that's a bad sin. Yeah, yeah, you're not quite welcome yet. No, God is impartial. He welcomes all. In fact, all throughout Scripture, we see God's plan to save all kinds of people. Even here, that is why Paul quotes four Old Testament references, verses 9 through 12. We're not going to get into the detail of those, but that is to show God's plan to save not just the Jew, but the Gentile as well. In fact, it's a great way to wrap up that whole section. God's plan and Christ's acceptance of his people was not impartial for the Jew only, but it's always been part of his plan that the Gentile would be accepted as well. You'd see how many times Gentile came up in those four Old Testament references. The good news is that salvation is available to you. Did you understand that? Do you hear that? The good news is that salvation is available to you. Have you, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Do you remember what it says in Romans chapter 10? Again, we looked at that a long time ago. It says this, because if you... Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you are not a Christian, I want you to listen. If you are not a Christian, no. That salvation is available to you. That Jesus Christ offers you hope. That Jesus Christ offers you salvation. That Jesus Christ offers you eternal life. That Jesus Christ offers you joy and purpose and satisfaction in Him. Will you reject Christ? Will you reject the free gift of salvation? Will you continue in your rebellion against God and continue to walk down a path that leads to destruction? And will you look to Christ, who is your life? Will you place your faith fully in Him? And will you repent of your sins and receive the full forgiveness from God? Next, Christ accepts us fully and securely. How else does Christ accept us? What does it look like? It is full and it is secure. God does not accept us partially or or mostly. And and then we must earn the rest of his acceptance. No, his acceptance of us is full and it is complete. Christ does not get us most of the way to God. And then we just need to finish it and do the last bit for God to accept us. No, it is finished. Christ is Finished it for us. And we have complete and full salvation in him. And it is secure. He will not change his acceptance of you. He will not accept you one day and then just disown you the next. He will not change his mind down the road. If so, he would have changed his mind on me a long time ago. Many times ago. But no, his acceptance is unconditional and is unchanging. Like nothing can separate us from the love of God. Remember Romans 8:38 and 39. I mean everything, all these things. No, nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you are in Christ, if you are truly born again, then you do not need to worry. You do need not need to wonder. You do not need to fear. If one day you will no longer be accepted by Christ, there is no fear. Christian, He will always accept you. Because his acceptance of you is complete. And it is unchanging. You are forever secure in his acceptance of you. And lastly, when we see his acceptance, that Christ accepts us for the glory of God. And I stated here, this group before, salvation and his acceptance of us. While it is for our infinite and extreme and eternal benefit. Yes, I'm so glad. But it's not primarily for us. Is for the glory of God Himself. That's what salvation is about. Ephesians 1 5 through 6. He predestined us for adoption as Son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to what? To the praise of His glorious grace. God is the one who receives glory in our salvation. That's what it's all about His glory. We are saved ultimately to bring glory to God. Now, there's a lot there that was just said. And I want you to put all these thoughts together on the drawing board, if you will. Maybe you've taken notes. Let's take all these thoughts. Put all these thoughts together. The thoughts of of who we are in the condition we are in which Christ accepts us. Being a sinner and an outcast, enemy, separated, alienated, hopeless, dead, all of this. Put that on the board. And also put on the board everything in which we just said and the way in which he does accept us. All of those ways in which we said in that, that he, he accepts us joyfully and in spite of our sin and impartially and fully and securely for the glory of God. Put all of this on the drawing board and just take a step back. Take a step back. And be in awe of the gospel. I mean, do you see this? Do you see it on the board? Do you see that it's so shocking and it's so scandalous when you just see it there all together? That Christ would accept you? That Christ would accept me? It doesn't make sense. That you and I, sinful, unclean, outcast enemies, in a complete rejection of God would be accepted by Christ. What? I should not be saved. I should not be accepted by God. I should be left alone and be held accountable for my sins against God and I should spend all of eternity in the lake of fire because that is what I rightfully deserve. And yet, and yet Christ accepts me And he himself took the punishment on my behalf. And now my slate is wiped clean and my sins have been washed away. And I am saved and I am a new creation and I worship God. Because of him. Not because of me. But because he accepts me. What a transformation. What a difference. Thank God for his amazing grace. Do you see the power of the gospel? Do you see when we lay it out like that, we say, wow, how amazing is this gospel? How powerful is this gospel? Has this gospel made a difference in your life? Has this gospel made an impact, made a difference, transformed your life? Or is this gospel just something that you know how to explain intellectually like that on a, on a history test or a math equation and say yeah this is the gospel no it's transformative and it's life changing well how so how, how is it life changing well in this context what we see our second point I promise it gets faster The Christian's acceptance of others. Okay. The acceptance of Christ. First we see Christ's acceptance of the Christian. Now we see the Christian's acceptance of others. That's nice. All right. The Christian's acceptance of others. So the call... Here is to now accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Okay. Now, wait a second. Remember what we just said about how Christ accepted us. Now, that is our call as a Christian to accept others in that way. That in the fullest, in the deepest, in the most sincere and genuine way, the Christian is to accept one another in the same way that Christ has accepted them. I mean... How can you look at that drawing board? Remember that drawing board. How can you look at that and say, oh, I'm in awe of God's love for me. And then you turn to your neighbor and you reject them. Who are you to reject them? When you reject another brother or sister in Christ, you are taking a position of pride. And you are placing yourself in a position higher than God. God's already accepted them, right? They're brother or sister in Christ. God has accepted them in their sin, in their rebellion, in their spiritual deadness. He accepted them, but not you. You, for some reason, believe you can reject someone whom Christ has already accepted. No. Paul says we are to accept one another as Christ has accepted us. And then. Well, how so? What does that look like? How can we accept Christ as he accepted us? Well, how did Christ accept us? <laughs> Let's go back. Let's bring this guy on back. First, joyfully. Right? Christ accepted us joyfully. We accept others joyfully. We are to joyfully accept one another. Out of love for our Lord and out of love for his people, we are to joyfully accept others. And not like when your parents say you need to forgive your brother and you slap him across the head and your mama says, Okay, and he slapped you across the head. Now you need to forgive him. Say, okay, I forgive you. We know you don't forgive him. But you say it so that you don't get in trouble, right? That's not what he's saying. You say, okay, I accept you. No, to joyfully accept others as they have been welcomed into the family of God, just like you. And so you too welcome them. So joyfully, how else do we accept others? We accept others in spite of their sin. Other Christians will sin against you. And you're like, amen. I know. And you will sin against other Christians. No, I don't do much Yes, and the closer you get to other Christians, and the more involved you get with other Christians and in ministry, the more you will be sinned against. But even in spite of their sin, we are still to accept them, just as Christ accepted us in spite of our sin. How else are we supposed to accept others impartially? We we're to accept all brothers and sisters in Christ, not just the ones. Oh, that are like me. I want to accept all the ones that are like me because I'm so cool. Right, Jordan? Yeah, you're cool. No. See, the tendency, even here at TYG, the tendency is to find your pockets, right? To find your clicks, to, to accept those people, those that are like me. But what about the new person? What about that weird kid who's not like the rest of us, who sits in the front row to my right? Dude, dude. I, like, like, like... It no no, not actually, like <laughs> <laughs> no, no, hypothetically speaking. I <laughs> oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. uh, yeah. What about them? Right? The weird ones, the ones that aren't like you. Do you accept them? Oh yeah, 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 I accept them. That's easy to say, but do your actions say otherwise? Or do you accept others impartially? You see? Next fully and securely. We would accept others fully and securely. You should not just accept others when everything's going well and they're doing and they're saying everything you like. Oh, but as soon as they mess up, oh, you're dead to me. Talk to the hand and go away. Do people still talk to the hand? Yeah. Yeah, fair. Okay. (laughs) Because I've seen people do it. You've seen people do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. I got you. I got you. Your acceptance of of them as being part of the body of Christ it ought to be secure. It ought to be unchanging. The body of Christ ought to be so gracious to one another. We ought to be so gracious to each other that even when we fall short, even when we fail, even when we sin against each other, we know we're still accepted in the body of Christ. Do people know that about you? You're here, you claim to be a Christian. Do people know that about you? Do people know that even if they mess up, even if they sin against you, you will still accept them? You will still be gracious to them. Do they know that about you? Is that even true about you? Or do other people walk on eggshells around you because they know that as soon as they mess up, you're going to explode. Or you're going to shun them. Or your acceptance of them will run out. We ought to accept each other fully and securely. And lastly, we ought to accept them for the glory of God. Our acceptance of others ought to be for the glory of God. And indeed, our true and genuine acceptance of others, one that accepts others like Christ, accepts us, that is glorifying to God. And that ought to be our motive, that ought to be our goal, the glory of God. And so accept others, not for your own gain, or for your own reputation, or for your own optics and how you look to everyone, but accept others because you know it honors and glorifies God. Accept others because you know that when the body of Christ is in unity together that they can better worship and serve God together. all for the glory of His name, you see. The point is this: if Christ, the perfect, holy, spotless lamb, has accepted you into the family of God, how much more ought we accept one another? You see? Christ, who's up here, right? Glorious, majestic, holy, perfect. He's up here. If he has accepted you, you're down here. Just so you know. And your brother or sister in Christ, they're right here with you. And yet you can't accept them. Christ accepts you. And Christ accepts them. And then here we are together and we say, Ah, no, I can't accept you. Be overwhelmed by this great acceptance of that Christ has shown to you. Be overwhelmed by that and show that same acceptance to one another. That's what he's getting at. All right, Ethan, we have to move on. I'm sorry, okay? (laughs) I know, you wanted to camp out there. I did too. But we must. Verse 14 through 22, our next section, the proclamation of Christ. The proclamation of Christ. We do have three points here. Don't worry, they will go quicker. The first... Is the proclamation that leads to growth in Christ. This is where we're going to uh, fly a little higher here. going to get in the nuances of everything, I want us to summarize what's going on. Verses 14 through 15, we see the proclamation of Christ that leads to growth in Christ. I'll explain. Paul is commending them, and he's acknowledging the growth that God has done in their lives. This growth, it, it, it happened apart from Paul's influence. There were others before he wrote this letter to them that had taught them and that had shepherded them. And Paul's aware of the ways in which others had proclaimed the truth of God into their lives and which God has used that for their growth. You see, others were proclaiming Christ to them and, and God used that for the growth. You see, the proclamation of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit causes growth in his people. And we are just vessels that proclaim it. We do not cause the growth. God does. But by his grace, many times, he chooses to use us. Well, there are three ways in which Paul acknowledges their growth in Christ. He says in verse 14, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Okay, here comes more subpoints to your subpoint. First is their goodness. What are ways Paul acknowledges their growth in Christ? Their goodness. And the word here for goodness is what you would expect. It's referred to moral and ethical goodness, being kind and thoughtful and caring towards others. But how can they have goodness? Luke, I remember a year and a half ago when you were in Romans 3 and you said, no one is good, no, not one. That's true. In our natural state, apart from Christ, we are not good. No one is good. But that's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes in the believer's life. The Holy Spirit, who gives us a new nature, changes us from the inside out. From the inside out. We just seen that tonight, right? That was a good job. Whoever picked that song. Good job. In fact, goodness, in which he says, goodness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. I like how Robert Haldane put it. He put it in this way. He said, In our flesh there is nothing good. But it's equally true that from the work of the Spirit in our hearts, we may be full of goodness. See, there's a difference in the life of a believer and the difference can always be traced back to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That with the Holy Spirit now indwelling the believer, there is a putting to death sin and there is a putting on of Christ's likeness. There is growth in the Christian life caused by the Holy Spirit, given by His grace. There's transformation in the believer's life. As we look down in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Is there evidence of the spiritual transformation in your life? If you're here, you claim to be a Christian, I ask you, is there evidence of this spiritual transformation in your life? How about specifically in goodness? Has the proclamation of Christ produced growth in Christ that has created goodness in you? Would others say of you that you are kind, that you are caring, that you are thoughtful towards others? Or do others know you as rude? Or angry. Or unloving. Does your life reflect the spiritual fruit of goodness? Well, that's not all he says about them. Second, he says their knowledge. He acknowledges their knowledge. And when Paul says knowledge, he's not saying they became bookworms and data heads and super smart. All right, yeah, you guys got super smart. No, he's not talking about intellect. He's talking about their knowledge of God's truth and his gospel. And indeed, every Christian should be growing in their knowledge of God's truth. It is understanding more and more of who God is and what he has done that that drives us to live and further worship to him. Because God is perfect and God is marvelous and God is indescribable. And as we learn more about him, we are driven to worship him. As we see more clearly how worthy of our lives and how worthy of worship he is. Do you fear God? Do you tremble at his holiness? Do you tremble at his majesty? Do do, do you see him for who he is and what he's done? And you say, all he can do is bow down and worship you. Or do you have a small view of God? If you have a small view of God, you have a small worship of God. But we must seek to understand God more and more each day. And we can spend our whole lives being students of his word, and we wouldn't come close to understanding the vastness of God's holiness and greatness. This knowledge, however, it cannot just be head knowledge, but it must lead to Christ-like living. See, there's a big difference between saying we believe something intellectually and actually believing it in practice. And I'm sure to some extent, most of you guys have gained some knowledge of God from years ago until now, right? From those years, you have gained some amount of knowledge of God. Well, what has that led to? What has your knowledge of God led to? Has it led to being puffed up in your head in pride? Has it led to judging others? Has it led to self-righteousness? Has it led to some kind of false security? What has your knowledge of God led to? Has it led to worship? Has it led to living your life more like Christ and more for Christ? Do not just stop with the head knowledge. It must affect the heart, it must affect your actions. Has your knowledge of God affected the way you live your life? Has it at all? Have you grown in your knowledge of God? you continue to do so even now is this something that you often and you regularly pursue are you active in growing your knowledge of god or or are you passive in this and does this growth lead you to worship does this lead you to living more and more for the glory of god the third thing he acknowledges of them is their ability to instruct one another their ability to instruct one another. It's admonishing one another, correcting one another. In summary, it's counseling one another in the Scriptures. And indeed, when Christ has been proclaimed to our hearts, when we are deep in Scripture, and when the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, we counsel one another in biblical wisdom. Not on our authority, but under the authority of God's Word. Every Christian should be instructing other Christians to some degree or another. And every Christian should be receiving instruction and counsel from other Christians in one degree or another. You see what I'm saying? That it is natural, it's necessary. uh, It's a necessary part of the Christian life of living together in the body of Christ. To be instructing and to be instructed. To admonish and to be admonished. Are you on the giving and on the receiving side of biblical instruction and counsel? If you are in Christ, you ought to be. I like how James Boyce asked it. Listen to this. He says... Do we love the Lord enough to talk about Him naturally and often? Do we love others enough to bring spiritual truths into daily conversation? Do we care for Christians enough to point them in the right direction when we see that they are deviating from or falling short of it? And do we sometimes talk about difficult things, though kindly? Do you admonish one another in grace and in humility? Do you care about one another to discuss deep spiritual truths with one another? Do you care for one another to bring up difficult and hard conversations for the sake of their edification and growth in Christ? Are you involved in each other's spiritual life in such a way that builds up the body of Christ? You ought to be given. You ought to be giving biblical counsel to others. And you ought to be receiving biblical counsel from others. We need it. We all need it. I need it. If you are in Christ, if you are truly a Christian, you should be either discipling someone or being discipled or both. God has designed the body of Christ to be a means of grace into each other's lives. And so speak of God's truth into other people's lives. Admonish them. And be spoken to of God's truth from others. And be admonished. Has the proclamation of Christ led to your growth in Christ? Has the teaching and the truths of Christ led to to change in your life, led to growth and transformation to be more and more like Christ? If there is no evidence of the work of Christ in your life, if there is zero evidence of the work of Christ in your life, I'd be as bold as to say, I don't think that you are a Christian. I don't think you are in Christ. How can you be a Christian? How can you be in Christ? How can you have the Holy Spirit indwelling inside you and yet there is no change in your life? You can't. It's impossible. The Holy Spirit has transformed the believer's life. Therefore, there must be transformation. The Holy Spirit has breathed new life into the believer. He has raised the dead to life. Therefore, there must be new life. Christian has the proclamation of Christ led to your growth in Christ. Has there been spiritual change and spiritual growth in your life? I believe it is very important for everyone professing faith. If you profess faith here tonight, I believe it's important for everyone professing faith to evaluate in their own lives if they are truly in the faith or not. And that's not my idea. That's Paul's idea. 2 Corinthians three, I'm sorry, 13.5. He says this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says test yourself if you are indeed in the faith praise god praise god for the miracle he's done in your life and praise god for the continual work he does in your life each and every day it is by his grace okay next i told you i was gonna go quicker i lied but this time i'm serious these next two for real are quicker for real I I don't know. We're going to find out. I'm pretty sure. Okay. I'm going to to make it happen. I told you to buckle up before we have it. I told you it was going to be a long one. These two are quick. Trust me. All right. Proclamation that boasts in Christ. Is this one going to be quick? We'll see. Proclamation that boasts in Christ. Verses 16 through 19. Even though Paul is boldly proclaiming the truth of Christ to them, he has this whole time, this whole letter, even though Paul is a minister of the gospel, even though Paul is an apostle, Paul is not boasting himself. He only boasts in Christ. In fact, he quotes something similar to this in his letters to the Corinthians when he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does he say here? Verses 17 and 18. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. You're like, what? You're proud? Verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. See, there's the difference. What Christ has accomplished through me. He doesn't boast in himself. He boasts in Christ. There's no place for boasting in the Christian life. At well, least not in oneself. How can you? Everything, is give, everything that's been given to you, everything done to you, everything done by you, is all by the grace of God. None of it originates in your own self. And even if God were to use you in great ways, to lead a great revival, even if he were to use you for his kingdom, such as he did with Paul, you cannot take any credit for it. Rather, we must give all credit to God, and we boast in him. See, the people whom God chooses to use are simply instruments in his hands. He is the author. He is the creator. He is the artist. He is the craftsman. We're just a tool. What a blessing it is to be a tool in the hands of God. That God would use us? Wait a second. Do you remember who we are and who we were apart from Christ? We have no business being trusted with such a great responsibility of proclaiming Christ and the truth of the gospel. God's very message to the world that says, this is my plan for redemption. And we have the privilege of proclaiming this? We have the privilege of proclaiming his word and teaching his truth. And we have the privilege of being part of the work and the edification of his body. We do. But none of it is because of us. None of it is because we're so great or because we've earned the right or, or we're so good. Or we're the reason why people are saved or people are growing? No, it's because of Christ. And so what? He so says we boast in him, not in us. And instead of boasting in ourselves, we can boast in Christ and be a testimony of the incredible work of God. That he would use such a wretched sinner such as myself and he would transform my life for the glory of him. You see, show his power. Don't, don't make this, this make-believe power of your own. But show his power. Imagine how Paul must have felt. And he's fully aware he had no business being a minister of the gospel or an apostle. He was seeking to extinguish the gospel and kill those who preached the gospel. However, Christ changed all of that. And Christ completely transformed him. And had it not been for Christ, he would still be living the way that he was. So no way does Paul boast in himself. He only boasts in Christ. And I'll tell you this, the same is true for you, Christian. If you were a Christian, the exact same thing is true for you. You may not have a Damascus Road story, but nonetheless you have the same miracle. That a dead body has been brought to life and Christ has made the same difference in you. And so we do not boast in ourselves, but we boast in Christ. And so we must have that same humility and that same gratitude that God would save us and that he would transform us and that God would choose to use us for his glory. How can we take credit for the work of God? Do not boast in yourself. Instead, boast in the work of Christ. Lastly, see what we've got here. Proclamation that spreads the name of Christ. Proclamation that spreads the name of Christ. Look what he says in verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. That's partly why he had not gone to this church uh, because others had already gone there. And so we understood the importance of going somewhere else first. Paul's goal was to spread the gospel and to spread it to those who have not heard of it. And there were other places that needed his attention, that needed the gospel to be clearly proclaimed. That was his goal. Proclaim it where others have not heard it. Has the proclamation of Christ in your life led you and given you the desire to spread the name of Christ to others? There are many in this world who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? They're everywhere. They are everywhere. They are in every country. They are in every city. They are in every town. They are here in Pleasant Hill where they have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every Christian is called to be a witness to the lost. Are you a witness to the lost? You are here to say, I'm a Christian. Are you a witness to the lost Christian? Do you desire to spread the name of Christ? There are those around you who need to hear about Christ. Do you desire for them to hear of Him? There are people here in this room that need to hear about Christ. Do you desire to proclaim Christ to them? Will you spread the name of Christ? Will you speak of His excellencies? Will you speak of His gospel? Will you speak of the free gift of salvation that He offers? Or you keep that magnificent truth to yourself. What is it that you proclaim to the world? Think about that, you, you personally. What is it that you proclaim to the world? What is it that, that you most passionately proclaim to others? And when I look on social media, when I hear people talk, oftentimes, what do people passionately proclaim? Sports, clothes, experiences they've had, vacations, video games, their dog. I love my dog, but come on. Are you more passionate about proclaiming those things than you are of Christ? Are those things more worthy of being proclaimed than Christ? Will you proclaim Christ? Will you proclaim Him? Tonight we see the importance of Christ being at the center. And Christ must be at the center of those whom we accept. And Christ must be at the center of that in which we proclaim. Christian, is Christ at the center of your acceptance of others? Do you accept others in the same way Christ has accepted you? Or or do you judge? Do you divide? Do you reject others? Go back to the cross and soak in the acceptance that Christ has shown you and accept others in that same way. The acceptance and the love of others, done so in the same way that Christ has accepted and loved you, I believe is a mark of a true Christian. Do you love and accept others in the same way Christ has loved and accepted you? It's a mark of a true Christian. And in some ways, the failure and the lack of acceptance and love for others may very well be a mark of someone who is indeed not in the faith. Where do I get that from? 1 John 2, 9-10. through 10. Whoever says he's in the light, I mean he's saved, he's in the light, and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Do you love others? Do you accept others in the same way that Christ has loved and accepted you? Let the gospel, let his love drive you to do so. And Christian, is Christ at the center of what and who you proclaim? Do you proclaim Christ to the lost? Do you proclaim him to other believers for the sake of their growth? Do you proclaim him in what you boast in? May Christ be at the center and the heart and the priority of what you proclaim. Now, final words for those who are not in Christ. If you are not a Christian, I want you to leave here hearing this. If you're not a Christian, hear this one thing. But you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ is that Savior. And he offers salvation in himself. He's not partial. But he offers you a free gift of salvation. And if you don't know what that means, please, I'd love to talk to you more. I know staff would love to talk to you more. Do not leave here not understanding what that means at the end of the day, there is nothing else that matters more than your relationship and your standing with God. So if you're not a Christian, do not let another day pass you by by being at odds with God. But come to Him in your own personal faith in Jesus Christ and your own personal repentance of your sins and receive the free gift of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. Christ is at the center. It is Him we proclaim it is His love that creates in us love for one another. So we love others, or may we love others, and may we proclaim His truth in the name of Jesus Christ for His glory. Let me pray. Oh God, I pray that the Christ will compel us to love others. God, that we would accept. One another, and the ways in which Christ has accepted us, that it would drive us to love others, that it would drive us to live for Your glory, and God, that we would proclaim Christ. It would it would lead us to the proclamation of Christ, God, because we desire for Your kingdom to grow, for You to be glorified. Lord, I ask that Your Spirit would continue to work in our hearts. And we will not forget the things in which we have learned. Lord, that you'd be honored and glorified even as we discuss these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.